understand, I understand that all the boys that's over there, they're, they're going to have a big baseball team, and I understand you're going to be the manager. That's right. Yeah? Yeah, how Well, if you're going to be the manager of this baseball team, I would like to join myself. That's all right. I would like to know some of the guys' names on the team, so when I meet them on the street or in the ballpark, I'll be able to say hello to them. Well, naturally, I'll introduce you to the boys, and a regular bunch of boys we've got. But you know, strange as it may seem, they give these ball players very peculiar names. You need funny names. Strange names, like, um... Dizzy Dean and Daffy. Daffy Dean. I'm your cousin. Who are you? Goofy. 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 <laughs> well, let's see. We have uh, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find and, out. And then we... I say who's on first, uh, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. Yeah, you know the fellow's names? Yes. Well, who's on first? Yes. I mean the fellow's name. Yes. I mean the guy playing first. Who? The fellow playing first. Who? The first baseman. Who? The guy playing first. Who is on first? Well, what are you asking me for? I'm not asking you. I'm telling you. Who is on first? I'm asking you who's on first. That's the man's name. Well, go ahead and tell me. That's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell me. Who? The guy on first base. Who? The fellow playing first. Look, who is on first? Have you got a first baseman? Yes. Who's playing there? Yes. <laughs> All I'm trying to find out is what's the guy's name on first base? No, wait a minute. No, wait a minute. Don't mix them up. What is on second? Who's on second? No, who is on first? I don't know. He's on third now. We're not talking about him. How did I get on third base? You just mentioned his name. If I mentioned the third baseman's name, who did I say is playing third? No, who's playing first? Never mind first. I don't know. What's the guy's name on third base? What's on second? Who's on second? Who's on first? I don't know. Third base. <laughs> Certainly. Then who's playing third? Who is playing first? What's playing first? Now, what's on second? I don't know. He's third base. Third base. <laughs> you got an outfield? Well, surely. The left fielder's name. Why? I don't know. I just thought I'd ask. <laughs> I just thought I'd tell you. So tell me who's playing left field. No, who's playing first? What's playing first? What's on second? I don't know. Third, third base. base, yeah. <laughs> Well, naturally. The catcher's name. Today. Today. And tomorrow's pitch. Now you've got it. That's all. we got a couple of days on the team. Well, I can't all. help that. You know, I used to be a catcher, too. I'll get behind the plate, do some fancy catching. Yes. Tomorrow's pitching on my team, and the heavy hitter gets up, yeah. Joseph Valentine, the heavy hitter. Now, Valentine gets up, and he bunts the ball. Mm -hmm. Now, when he bunts the ball, me being a good catcher, I'm going to throw Valentine out of first base, so I pick up the ball and throw it to who? Now, that's the first thing you said right. I don't even know what I'm talking about! <laughs> Wow. Not only, I mean, great comedy, right? But who's on first? What a, what a great question for all of us to ask in our own lives. Abbott and Costello, that was their famous comedy routine, who's on first? You guys remember when comedy used to be funny like that? I mean, there was a day. But uh, who's on first? It's an interesting, interesting question. You know, you think about that as it relates to our own lives. We could literally just meditate on that question all day, and I think God could do some serious work in our hearts. But who is on first is the question that we're going to be exploring together this summer as we move into our new series on the Ten Commandments, a series called The Ten Great Freedoms. You know, a lot of people, when they think about the, the moral law that God gave to his people, the, the moral law that he expects us to follow as well as his people, a lot of people think of God's law as being some kind of restrictive force, some kind of restraining force. But the reality is, is when we follow God's law, when we embrace it and seek to live it out faithfully, what we discover is God's law, rather than bringing restriction, brings great freedom into our lives. And we're going to see that this, this summer together as we study these Ten Commandments, the Ten Great Freedoms. 
You know, a lot of Christians ask the question, you know, does, does the Old Testament law still apply to us today? Well, some of it does, certainly. Uh, we don't follow the civil laws that God gave Israel anymore because those were meant for Israel. We don't follow the ceremonial laws anymore because Jesus fulfilled all of those as the, as the perfect priest of God, the perfect sacrificial lamb of God. Uh, he, the temple of God now dwell. We are the temple of God as his presence lives within us. So we don't follow the civil laws. We don't follow the ceremonial laws. But the moral laws that God gave Israel are still in full effect and application for our lives as God's people today. In fact, Jesus told his disciples in John 14, 15, he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Remember, the same God who gave the Ten Commandments is the same God who said those words. Jesus Christ. And so as followers of Jesus, we want to honor him. And one of the ways that we honor him is by seeking to follow his will. One of the ways that we follow his will is by walking in obedience to the moral law that he has given us. And again, it's a law that leads to life, a law that leads to great freedom. This morning, we're going to be talking about who is this God who has given us these 10 great freedoms, the 10 commandments. In Hebrew, literally the 10 words, the 10 words from God, our creator. And so we're going to be looking at this God this morning. You might notice in your worship guide, uh, the uh, title of the sermon in your worship guide is not the title that you see on the screen behind me. Uh, originally, we were uh, planning on talking about uh, freedom from despair, the first commandment. And we're going to be covering that next week. This past week, I started recognizing, you know what, we really need to go back and, and focus on the nature and character of the God who gave these commandments before we can truly live them out and follow them in, uh, in full understanding. So today we're going to be looking at the God who gave us the Ten Commandments, the God of freedom. And to do that, we're going to go back to the scene at Mount Sinai where God delivered the Ten Commandments to his people because there's a lot that we can learn about our Creator God, this God who's given his moral will to us in these Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. There's a lot we can learn about him from his deliverance of these words to his people in Exodus chapter 19. Before we get to Exodus 19, though, let's look at the Ten Commandments together. They're found in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. How many of you know the Ten Commandments by heart? Let me see your, let me see your hands. Now, now, for those of you raising your hands, you're not breaking one of the commandments, are you? You're not telling a lie. <laughs> I, I'm trusting you on that. You really, really know. But I appreciate it, right? Uh, we, we know the Ten Commandments are important. Uh, we know that they matter for our lives, but, you know, look at that. We probably had 95% of the congregation here who didn't have their hands up. And if we were forced to be put on the spot, I, I think we would struggle to list the Ten Commandments. But this summer, we're going to seek to get a good, comprehensive understanding of these Ten Commandments and how they apply to our lives. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1, God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an, a carved image or a likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me 
but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land and that the Lord your, that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Here we have the 10 words, the 10 commandments, the 10 great freedoms as we're going to see this summer. But again, friends, as I mentioned a moment ago, we cannot fully appreciate these Ten Commandments and truly seek to apply them to our lives if we don't first have a clear vision of the God who spoke these Ten Words to Israel, the God who expects us as well as his people to seek to follow these Ten Words, these Ten Commandments in obedience ourselves. So this morning we're going to look back at the setting in which God gave the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel. And we're going to learn a lot about who God is today. Number one, in giving the Ten Commandments, what we're going to see is that God, excuse me, is that God revealed to his people his grace. We're going to see that God revealed his grace. Now, we're going to go back to Exodus chapter 19, the chapter right before what we just read, and we're going to see the scene in which these Ten Commandments were delivered to the people of Israel. Exodus 19 is all about God setting the terms of his covenantal relationship with the Israelites. And friends, understand, this was a relationship that was based wholly on God's grace. God's relationship with the Israelites from the very beginning was based on God's grace. You go back through the history of the Old Testament. God had chosen Israel through his relationship with Abraham. It wasn't based on anything that Abraham had done. It was God's choice of Abraham. It was God's amazing grace by which he called Abraham into this special relationship to be the father of his special people, the nation of Israel. That was all by grace. And then we see in the Old Testament how Israel winds up in slavery in Egypt for over 400 years. Slaves in Egypt. And God again, in his amazing grace, delivers his people. He, he sends the ten plagues. He, he provides the Passover lamb. He parts the Red Sea. These were all acts of grace. Israel did nothing to earn these favors or deserve this blessing from God, God did this out of his love, out of his grace. And now today, God, we're going to see God is going to give Israel his law. Again, an act of grace, giving, him, giving them his law so that they might live for his glory and experience all of the blessings that are found when we walk in obedience to him. But th this was all of grace, 
The whole story of Israel is all of grace. Our story, as those who have been saved by Jesus, it's a story of grace. We're going to see this so clearly here this morning, and it's so important because we need to understand that our God is a God of amazing grace. Let's take a look at what took place at Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 19, if you have your Bibles. We see here God's grace in the first eight verses. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. So this is three months now after the exodus from Egypt. On that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they encamped there in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. Now again, if you, if you have a map in your, in your mind right now, you have Israel there, that tiny little strip of land right on the east of the Mediterranean Sea. If you go straight south of Israel, on one side you'll find the nation of Egypt. If you go straight south the other way, you're going to find the Sinai Peninsula. And so Israel now has crossed from Egypt over the Red Sea to the Sinai Peninsula. Here they are in the wilderness. They've come to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up to God, verse 3 says, The Lord called to him and out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel." So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Now, friends, again, the whole scene from which God delivers these 10 words, the 10 commandments, the whole scene began in God's amazing grace. Just look at these first eight verses here, how we see God's grace at Sinai. How we see God's grace at Sinai. Number one, we see in that God delivered his people from slavery. We see, number two, how God bore them up, he says. To to bore them up, that, that means God literally lifted them on eagles' wings and carried them out of Egypt. They had nothing to do with that. They didn't didn't overcome the Egyptians through their military might. They didn't sneak out of Egypt by their cunning. No, God bore them up and carried them on eagles' wings out of Egypt. He brought them to himself. He gave them a mediator in Moses who, who could speak on God's behalf for the people. And then he calls them to obedience and promises them blessing if they walk in obedience with him. Now, friends, I want you to notice these six things that we just read here in verses 1 through 8. Number points 1 through 4, what, what do we have there? It's grace, it's grace, it's grace, it's grace. And after lavishing his grace, then he calls his people to obedience so that they might know blessing in a relationship with him. That's the pattern that we see all throughout the Bible, friends. That's God's pattern of amazing grace. It's grace, and then it's obedience, and then it's blessing. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. 
This is how God has always worked with his people. He saves by grace, then he calls us to walk in obedience by faith with him, and he promises great blessing to those who do so. That's the pure and simple gospel, and it's found all throughout the Bible, from the beginning in the Old Testament all the way to the end at Jesus' second coming. This is God's pattern, grace, obedience, blessing. And friends, I want you to notice, our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Is that not true? Our God is the same. And if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, everything you see here in these opening verses of chapter 19 should sound very familiar to you. Because this is exactly what God has done for us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ. Remember what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's the obedience factor right there. For good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. See, friends, this is the gospel. The the same way that God saves us by his amazing grace and then calls us to work out our salvation in obedience, leading to blessing when we do so, right? This is the same pattern that God used in giving the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel. It was grace, it was obedience, and then it was blessing. And notice, friends, the motivation, the motivation for keeping God's law the motivation for walking in obedience. It changes everything to recognize that it all starts with grace. God doesn't come to us and say, okay, here's a whole bunch of laws. I'm going to expect you to follow these. Here's 10 commandments. You better hit them all, and then I'll love you, and then I'll bless you. No, that's not how God works, is it? God says, I'm going to save you. I'm going to bear you up. I'm going to bring you into my presence, and then I'm going to give you my law so that you can walk in it and experience blessing in a relationship with me. And that changes our whole motivation, recognizing that we are first and foremost saved by God's amazing grace. And so just as he did with Israel, in Christ God has set us free as well so that we might live for him and walk in obedience to him and experience the freedom that comes when we do so. Now, now the second thing that God revealed here in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 19. Not only did God reveal his grace, but we also see here in Exodus 19 his holiness. Our God is a God who is awesome in holiness. Friends, if we're going to understand the Ten Commandments, we have to understand both of these realities. This is the God who gave us these ten laws, these ten great freedoms. He is a God of amazing grace, but he is also a God of awesome holiness. And if you don't hold those two things in balance with each other, you're never going to fully understand and appreciate and be able to live out in obedience the law of God that he calls us to follow. Let's take a look at God's awesome holiness here in Exodus 19. Exodus 19, verses 9 through 25. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. 
When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people, and he consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. In other words, don't have sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai. You yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Wow. What an incredible scene we read about here. What an awesome spectacle this must have been if you were one of the Israelites there standing at the foot of Mount Sinai as God descended in all of his supremacy and majesty and holiness. Look at what God's word tells us about the ways in which we see his holiness here in Mount Sinai. We see it first in his presence God's presence descends upon Mount Sinai in a dark cloud. The dark cloud was symbolic of God's glory. Now, now how did the cloud convey God's glory? The cloud was actually a veil covering God's glory. It was a veil covering God's glory because as we saw last week, as Pastor Stephen shared, 1 Timothy 6.16 says, God dwells in unapproachable light. We can't even come into his presence. In fact, Moses, a few chapters later, Exodus 33, 20, Moses wants to see God, and God says to Moses, you can't see my face, for no man shall see me and live. God's glory was so spectacular that he literally veiled his glory in a cloud. If you remember, friends, this is how he did it in the tabernacle, in the temple. Remember, there was a huge curtain there. There was a huge curtain that separated the temple, the rest of the temple, from God's presence in the Holy of Holies. Why the huge curtain? Why the barrier? Because God's glory was too powerful for anybody to look upon and live. 
In fact, only once a year would a priest be allowed to go behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies, and they would literally tie a rope to his leg if he actually died in the presence of God in his awesome glory. They could pull his body out to recover it. God's glory is just awesome. We then see God. He revealed himself in thunder and an earthquake. Here we see God's supreme power. God revealed himself in fire. The, the mountain was engulfed in fire, which symbolizes God's righteous purity. We, we see that there was this trumpet call of God, this trumpet call that grew, grew louder and louder and louder. The trumpet call, friends, was symbolic of God's sovereignty. It's the way you announce the arrival of the king, the trumpet blast telling people that the king is coming. And all of this was taking place there at the mountain. We, we then see God's holiness here at Sinai and how God told Moses to set a perimeter of, around the mountain. He said, set a perimeter so people don't get close. Don't even come too close because you can't handle my glory. You can't handle my holiness. If you get too close, you will literally die. And so set a perimeter for the people's protection. Protecting them from the glory of God. The word glory in Hebrew is kavod. It, it, it speaks of a weightiness, a heaviness. God's glory will literally crush you if you get too close. We then see, thirdly, God's holiness in the people's preparations. God says to Moses, go and consecrate the people for, for in three days I'm going to come and appear and start by having them wash their clothes. Wash all their clothes. Now you can just imagine, here you have hundreds of thousands of Israelites, maybe more than a million Israelites, all trying to wash their clothes in two days. And you can just imagine the chaotic scene that that must have been. Because remember, if you remember the story of the Exodus, they were getting water from a rock that God had provided in his amazing grace. So here you have hundreds of thousands of Hebrew women lining up to get water from this rock to wash their clothes. And friends, think about this. How do you ever get your clothes clean enough to come into the presence of a God who is this holy? And this glorious. And I can just imagine these women scrubbing with all their might, doing everything they could, and thinking, This is futile. We've been wandering in the wilderness. How are we ever going to clean these garments? Friends, that was the whole point. They could never get their clothes clean enough. It's as Paul tells us in Romans 3.10, no one is righteous. No, not one. And as they struggled to clean their clothes, all they could do was recognize just how far short they fell of God in his awesome glory. And then Moses tells the people, abstain from sexual relations. Why? It wasn't because sex was bad or sex is dirty. No, this, this was a form of fasting. This was about Moses telling the people, it is time to channel all of your passions, all of your desire, all of your energy into meeting the Lord God because he's coming in three days. And so we're going to abstain from that. And it was also, I believe, because God wanted to communicate to his people the way that he wanted them to approach him. You see, where they were going, Canaan, the land of Canaan, all of the gods of Canaan were worshipped through illicit sexual activity. Shrine prostitution, homosexuality, 
sexual adultery. They were all worshipped through illicit sexual acts. And God was saying to his people there at the foot of Mount Sinai, when you come into my presence, you don't come by perverting my good gift of sex. You come on my terms through my amazing grace. And so God says, wash your garments, abstain from sex. We see the people's preparations. Fourthly, we see the rebels' penalty. God tells Moses, look, if anybody breaks through that perimeter and touches the mountain, the penalty is death. And in fact, don't even touch the person. They should be shot or stoned. Don't even touch them because they've touched my glory and now they are dangerous themselves as a result. It reminds me of what Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. You know, it's no wonder the author of Hebrews tells us it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Friends, when you understand who our God is in all of his holiness and all of his awesome glory, it's no wonder we read at the end of Exodus chapter 20 after God gives the Ten Commandments to the people, the people cry out to Moses, stop, make him stop talking. Moses, don't let God speak to us anymore because we're going to die. You speak to us on behalf of God, Moses. Because God's glory and holiness was so awesome and fearful that the people trembled in his presence. Friends, God revealed himself in such a terrifying way because Israel needed to understand very clearly who he was and who they were in relation to him. And we need to understand this as well. He is the creator. We are the creation. He is sovereign over all. We are not. And we get that so confused so often, don't we? Thinking we're the gods of our lives. We're sovereign over our circumstances. God laughs in the heavens. Because he is the creator. The one who is holy and awesome and majestic. I wonder, friends, do we have a proper appreciation for God's holiness? I think one of the biggest errors of contemporary Christianity is that far too many Christians have embraced a diminished vision of God in his holy splendor. We've neutered God of the majesty and glory he displayed on Sinai. And we wonder why so many churches today are impotent to stand against an ever-darkening culture. We wonder why so many who've sat among us in worship are so quick to abandon their faith for the lies of this world. We wonder why we ourselves don't just stumble into sin, but so often dive headfirst into it. Friends, we've lost sight of who God is. Our God is awesome in holiness. And if we're to honor him faithfully, we need to retain this vision. We need to remember the God who descended upon Sinai, an amazingly gracious God, but a God who is fearsome in holiness. We can't lose sight of both of those realities. This is our God, amazing grace, awesome, and terrifying holiness. Thirdly, this morning, in the Ten Commandments, God reveals to us his will. 
God reveals to us his will. You know, it's interesting. There's a lot of times in our lives when we wrestle with seeking God's will, aren't there? Right, Lord, you know, do, where, where do you want me to go to college? I, I'm just, I got these two great schools. I'm trying to, tr- Lord, what's your will? Where do you want me to go? Or, or, or in your dating relationships, right? Like, Lord, do you really want me to go out with this guy? Is he really the one? Should I, should I take this step of faith and, and trust that this is your will for my life? How many of you have ever wrestled with God's will, seeking a job? You know, Lord, is this really the company you want me to go work for? What's your will, Lord? I want to be in your will. There's a lot of times in our lives when it's, it's a wrestling. We don't know God's will. We're struggling to seek God's will. But here, here in the Ten Commandments, friends, we can see God's will in total clarity. Do you want to be in God's will? If so, God says, do these. Don't have any other God before me. Don't lie. Don't steal. Honor your father and mother. Don't commit adultery, right? When we look to the Ten Commandments, we don't have any question about what God's moral will is for our lives. And keep in mind, again, this is God's moral will. It's timeless. It's universal. It applies to all people in all places. Why? Because it's rooted in the very nature and character of the God who created us. And so these moral laws are never going to get old. They're never going to go out of style. They're never going to be irrelevant. They're rooted in who God is. If you remember Jesus, in Matthew chapter 22, the, the Pharisees came to Jesus and tested him and said, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? What's the greatest commandment in the law? And what did Jesus say? He said, there's actually two of them. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, all the law and the prophets can be summed up in these two commands. And it's very interesting, those two commands, love God and love your neighbor. When we look at the Ten Commandments, it's the exact same thing. The first four of the Ten Commandments are all about our love for God. The last six of the Ten Commandments are all about our love for our neighbor. How do we love God rightly? How do we love our neighbors rightly? Again, friends, God's moral law, when Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandments, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about walking in obedience to his will for our lives. Now, we're going to be talking a lot about this will of God as revealed in the Ten Commandments over the remainder of the summer. But as we begin our series this morning, I want to highlight three fundamental realities for you about God's will as revealed in the law. Number one, God's will as revealed in the law leads to life. Now, this is where we get our title for our series this summer, The Ten Great Freedoms. Friends, think about this. When we obey God's law, what we discover is that God's law leads to great freedom, to blessing, to flourishing in our lives individually, in our families, in our church, in our society. These are the ten great freedoms, the ten great blessings. They lead to flourishing in our lives. Friends, think about this. Just take one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal. How different would our world be if people lived by that command faithfully? Not having to fear about locking your door at night. 
Not having to worry about when you go down to Minneapolis, will I be one of the 1,400 cars that have been stolen already in the first six months of this year? Not having to worry if you're a, a local storekeeper, if a roving gang of thugs is going to come in and completely loot and destroy your whole store. Not having to wonder if when we send our tax dollars to the IRS, our corrupt politicians going to abuse and misuse that money for their own personal gain. Oh, my friends, there is great freedom in following God's moral will in obedience. But sadly, our nation has turned its back on God's moral law. Back in 1980, the United States Supreme Court said, look, we can't post these Ten Commandments in our schools anymore. We, we got rid of God. We kicked him out of our schools. We got rid of the Ten Commandments. The Supreme Court said if the posted copies of the Ten Commandments are to have any effect at all, it will be to induce the school children to read, to meditate upon, perhaps to venerate and obey the Ten Commandments. What a tragedy that would be. Wow. We wouldn't want our children to learn and obey God's moral will for our lives. Interesting. I was watching just the other day Robert Kennedy, presidential candidate on the Democratic side. He did a town hall forum and he was talking about gun violence and basically saying, look, I'm not, I'm not looking to confiscate anybody's guns, but we got to look at the question of why has there been this crazy rise in gun violence in schools? Just in the last 40 years, he says, we've had guns. We've always had guns. We've, I grew up going to school with a gun, he said. We've had guns all the time, but something happened in the last 40 years where all of a sudden there's been this massive rise in violence. What happened? I'll tell you what happened. We kicked God out of our culture. We stopped teaching our kids his moral law. It matters because it leads to flourishing. It leads to life. Look at what God's word says about his law. Here's just a small sampling. Deuteronomy 5.33. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Deuteronomy 6.24 and 25. And the Lord commanded us, do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commanded before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. We see in Psalm, 20, Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making the wise simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true, and righteousness are altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Psalm 25. Psalm 25 goes on. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. Psalm 119.93, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. Psalm 119.165, great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Look what Paul says in Romans 7.12, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy holy and righteous and good. Friends, are you getting the pattern here? God's law is good. 
God's will is good. God's holy standards, his moral standards for our lives are good for us to follow. And we're going to be talking about this summer how God's law leads to life. But the second thing that we discover in God's law is that it also leads to humility. It leads to humility because what it does is it humbles us. It reveals just how far we truly are from God's holy standards. Friends, let me ask you this morning, have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever used God's name in vain? Have you ever committed adultery? And by the way, Jesus says to look at a woman lustfully is to commit adultery. Same God. Have you ever told a lie? Are you lying right now? Friends, these are just four of the Ten Commandments, and already I can see I'm a sinful wretch. See, the law leads to humility because it humbles us when we recognize our sin. Romans 3, 19 through 20 and 23, Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The law, friends, is like a mirror a mirror that reveals our sin to us. And we recognize just how far short we fall from God's holy standards. And so thirdly, what we see in the law is that it leads us to Christ. It leads us to Christ. R.C. Sproul says this, God did not give the law as a way for us to attain status in his family. The law was given to show us the righteousness of God. It was given so that we can see the perfect righteousness of God and by comparison see ourselves warts and all and despair of our own unrighteousness. The law sends us rushing to the cross and running for grace. Paul puts it like this in Romans 8. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Aren't those great words, friends? In Jesus, we're not under the condemnation of the law. Why? For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. What is this all about here? This is the gospel. Jesus came the God-man, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect substitute to live the law in perfection, to fulfill the law perfectly, what we could never do ourselves. And he went to the cross as the perfect sacrificial lamb of God, the sinless one. And he died on the cross for our sin, taking all of our guilt, all of our shame upon himself so that when we trust in him, God no longer applies the penalty of the law to us. But he looks at the shed blood of Jesus that paid that penalty for us. And he welcomes us into new life. A life empowered by the Holy Spirit. A life that can now truly walk in obedience under the energizing power of the Spirit. Philippians 2.13, Enerieho, right? The energizing power of the Spirit that then allows us to walk and live out these laws in obedience. This past week, many of us watched the news. 
we watched the news and we saw the tragic story of the Ocean Gate Titan submersible and the five people who lost their lives. These five individuals last Sunday set out for the wreck of the Titanic 12,500 feet down below the Atlantic Ocean. What was supposed to be a 12-hour voyage, four hours down, spending some time looking around, four hours back up. Hour and 45 minutes into their voyage, the mothership lost contact with the Titan submersible. After a few hours went by, they started getting worried. They called out a search party. Navies and Coast Guards from around the world came recognizing that the sub would only have at most 80 hours of oxygen. It was a race against time as the clock was ticking away as they desperately searched for this sub looking to rescue these five people. Many of us watched the news and we prayed. And on Thursday morning, we mourned as we heard that the sub had been discovered 1,600 feet away from the wreck of the Titanic. The sub had imploded. There was an implosion. The weight of the ocean literally crushed, crushed that submarine. As I reflected upon this tragedy this week, I couldn't help but recognize that many in our world today are headed for the same destiny spiritually. They're adrift in a sea of rebellion against God. They're lost in the depths of their sin, and they are plummeting towards a spiritual implosion when they will one day stand before God in all of his righteous glory. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And as we saw earlier, friends, no one can survive the weight of God's glory. To stand bare and exposed in your sin in the presence of the kavod, the glory of God, is to be crushed. It's a spiritual implosion. But the good news today is that God has provided a means of rescue, a way of salvation, a vehicle that can bring us safely into God's glorious presence without fear. And that vehicle is Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In John 10, 9, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Friends, we need not fear standing in the holy, glorious presence of our God because he is also a God of amazing grace who has provided a way through his Son, Jesus Christ. Our world needs to know that there's hope. Our world needs to know that there's a vehicle that can bring them into God's glorious presence. It's through his son, Jesus Christ. Have you put your hope and trust in Jesus? Are you trusting him to bring you safely into God's holy presence? If you do, he'll do that for you. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your awesome holiness and your amazing grace and we thank you for your law that leads to life and life abundant we thank you lord that your law also reveals our sin and our desperate need for you and that you have also provided a way through your son jesus christ to bring us to salvation to deliver us into your presence without fear so that we can experience the joy and glory of a relationship with you 
leading to a life of walking in obedience with you that leads to our flourishing, that leads to life. Life here, but life everlasting forevermore. What a gift of amazing grace. Jesus, I pray right now that if there's anybody here this morning who has never put their hope and trust in you, that they might not miss out on this opportunity, that they don't need to fear that spiritual implosion when they one day stand in your holy presence, but they can know that in Jesus they can be saved. And I pray that even right now, if they've never put their hope and trust in you, that even right here in the quiet of their own heart, they might just call out to you and say, Jesus, I know I desperately need you. Please save me. And because you are a God of amazing grace, you promise to deliver all who trust in you. Lord, we thank you for this message this morning, for these words of truth that we've seen together from your word. Help us, Lord, to live by them faithfully and to go into this world and share the good news of our God of amazing grace. We pray this in your great name. Amen. Friends, would you please stand for our benediction this morning? comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. And now the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. And God bless you.